So yes, Rick is correct. Sinclair was one of my, maybe he was even my first professor I had first year of seminary over 30 years, 34 years ago this year. That's what I'm thinking. I'm kind of going, and Sinclair's older than I am, so what, what does that tell you? And he's going strong, so, but I got to tell you, tell you these stories. I loved, I didn't know Rick would be with him uh, this weekend. Sinclair Ferguson was actually, now, I don't know what happened in Sunday school. I thought it was all good until the last five minutes, so I'm actually wondering now, but we were talking first and second causes, right? So second cause of my entering into this thing called the Reformed tradition was Sinclair Ferguson. I, you know, my growing up in Christ, uh, I came to Christ through young life, and so highly relational. I had no clue Reformed, Arminian, dispensational, blue state, red theology, this, that. I was like, I thought we were supposed to love Jesus and love people. And that was kind of the way I was brought up and discipled and whatnot. So here it is, fall of 1986. And I know probably more about that because the Mets beat the Red Sox in the World Series that year. So I would be like going to class and then quickly going and watching the World Series game. So it's fall of 1986, and Sinclair is my first teacher. And I won't do this in case, why would Sinclair listen to the, our sermon on the dark web? But I, in his great Scottish voice, he's teaching and he stands up and he says, turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1, and he starts reading Ephesians chapter 1, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessings in the heavenly places, for he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before He's going on and on. I'm going, this is rich stuff. And he stops and he goes, and today, this is the heart of Reformed theology. And I went, and I'm 24 years old, okay? Never a shy one. And so I went and blurted out, whoa, I'm Reformed. <laughs> I had no clue. That's what it was all about. So Sinclair Ferguson was the second cause, so to speak, whatever that means, of my entering into the Reformed tradition. And one other quick Sinclair story, he is one whale of a golfer. Just before graduation, uh, I took out Sinclair so that he could play golf with my dad. So my dad and Sinclair and I all go play golf together. Now he gets out of the car and he's wearing a dress shirt and a tie and a coat and he took takes off the tie and the coat, and he plays 18 holes, shot a 72 in a dress shirt. I'm going, okay, so not only does he know the hymns by heart and he knows theology, he's one whale of a golfer. Now, you might be saying, what does that have to do with the sermon? What we're looking at, remember I said in 2020, at least the first month, January of it, we are going to be doing this brief mini-series on the fundamentals of Spruce Creek's vision. And we're honing in as we look at what does it mean to go and make disciples of all nations, that basically a healthy dis disciple is going to be, and this is kind of a summary statement, and you do know that's what visions are. Visions are not comprehensive. But if you say, what are the categories that a disciple will be about? The three basic things that a disciple will be about are gospel, community, and mission. That through the good news of Jesus Christ come into the earth for sinners, God is forming a people for himself.
and a people who will overflow with the life of God so that there's no choice but but for it to be outward-facing towards others and towards the community. And one of the things I have to admit that I learned at Westminster Seminary was what a beautiful community looked like. And I bet you Rick would say that. As much as we're learning theologically and what does it mean to be a pastor and all of that kind of stuff, what I remember about my time at Westminster, and I know I hear this from Rick about his time at RTS, I remember the professor's prayers. I can remember Bruce Waltke's concern for my family when we were giving birth to Joel and I lived an hour and a half away. I remember Tim Keller giving me marriage counseling. I remember Harvey Kahn being interested in the missions program of the church that I was a part of. So as much as they taught theology, guess what? It breathed out in a flesh of what does it mean to do life together? A life that is devoted to and committed to the word of God overflowing in a life of loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loving your neighbor, both within and outside the church, as yourself. And the passage we're going to look at this morning, Acts chapter 2, verses 41 through 47, so there is your clue that in just a minute we're going to stand and read the text. You can turn in your Bibles to it. Talks about and tells us about this beautiful community of the early church. It tells us something of what we ought to look like, or at least be striving towards as a community, what it looks like to do life together. We get a glimpse at Jesus' beautiful community. So let's pray, and then we will stand together and read the Word of God from Acts chapter 2. Father, In this holy moment where you are sharing your word with us, open our hearts that we may receive your word and be changed and transformed by your word. Through Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit, we come before you three in one. Amen. Please stand for the reading of God's word, if you are able. Acts chapter 2, verses 41 through 47. Hear the word of the Lord. So those who received his word were baptized. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, Attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Before we dive into the passage before us, a couple of different brief things. First of all, We all know something of the joys and difficulties of community. We know something of the sweetness of being known, of giving ourselves to a cause bigger than ourselves, the sweetness of being loved and embraced, the significance it gives us to lay down our agenda for the common good, for the good of others. We all know. Anybody remember the show Cheers? Remember the show Cheers? My favorite character to this day is still Norm. There is just something about he walks into that bar and everybody goes, Norm! Don't you love that? See, I think there's part of me that would love to walk in here and everybody goes, Jeff! Isn't that great? And then Sam, the bartender, goes, Norm, how are you doing? 
oh, it's a dog-eat-dog world out there, and I'm wearing milk-bone underwear. <laughs> okay? Now, that may not be biblical community, but it does tell us something about community, does it not? We all want to be connected. We all want to commune. We want to know to be known. We want to love and to be loved. We all have, what is the phrase that goes around on the interwebs and all that kind of stuff? The fear of missing out? We all have that. Why wasn't I invited to that party? What about this? How about this? We all have that. Well, let's admit it. Let's be some, have some vulnerability here. We are all fragile and insecure people that want to be included. Community is vitally important to us. Now, there's a theological reason why it's vitally important to us. We are created in the image of God, and we were built for community. Now, here's what I mean. Who is God? God is Trinity. Triune, that means tri-personality. Three persons in one God. That means by very definition, God is relational. And I say that because before everything, because God has no beginning, God has no end, God is self-existent, God is not needy, he didn't need to make us. What was the Trinity doing before the creation? They were loving each other, relating to each other, deferring. And because the nature of love is to give and to share, God, by his very inherent personality, had no choice but to be himself, but to be God, and to give, which means the overflow of God's Godness was to create, and the apex of that creation was mankind made in the image of God, meaning to be relational. We were built to love, to belong, to belong to each other. See, everything starts with who God is. And if God is Trinity, that means before he ever created, he was in a loving relationship with the members of the Trinity, and he made us in his image. He made us to be like him. So let's take a look at this passage and basically say, what, what does it look like to grow in a biblical, beautiful community? And we're going to learn three things from this text. Three basic words about developing and growing in community, and the three words are cultivation, celebration, and communication. Okay? Cultivation, celebration, and communication. First of all, cultivation. The first aspect of the character of their community was to cultivate relationship with God and with others. Now, I'm going to cheat here a little bit because you're thinking it's a three-point outline. I'm going to give you two sub-points. So it all of a sudden became a five-point outline. Under cultivation, we learn two things about their community. First, we learn that it was a learning community. Now, let's take a look. What do we mean by that? Okay. Verse 42 says, and they were devoted to the apostles' teaching. Now, a couple things. Who were the apostles? The apostles were the ones closest to Jesus. They were giving that given that foundation calling and commission and mandate to interpret the life of Jesus, his ministry, his life, his death, his resurrection, to us and for us. In other words, they interpret the life of Christ. 
Theirs was a foundational ministry. Paul wrote in Ephesians 2 verse 20, he says, Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people. And notice the relational thing of this next thing. And members of God's household built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. Now the text tells us they were devoted to the apostles' teaching. Isn't that interesting? That means they didn't look at it in a half-hearted manner. They were fully purposeful and intentional about the apostles' teaching. They, even though they knew they were saved by grace, salvation was completely by grace through faith, that did not mean that they did not follow hard after Jesus. And why? To be accepted by him? No, they knew they were already justified. They were already accepted by him. Why? Because... They wanted to cultivate relationship with him. I mean, think about this. If we said creation was for the purpose of God sharing his life, sharing his love with the world, think about something like what his word is, the word of the Lord. See, it is God's very word to us. It's his communication to us. It's his love letter to us. You know, think about what it would be like, those of us who are married, if we only wanted to talk to our spouse once a week. <laughs> if we basically went, oh, it's Sunday, I'll talk to my spouse then, that's fine, I don't need to really communicate with you. You don't need to hear my word, I don't need to hear your word. Now, I don't want my office filling up with marriage counseling all week, but what would that say about our marriages if the desire of our heart, we weren't intentional about communicating with our spouse. See, I know, and I probably drive Evie crazy with this, but I will go home and I'll be like, tell me about your morning. How was Gracie? What's going on in your heart? Did you rest well? How are you feeling? What's the pain level like? And I'll be, I am a verbal person, you know, so I mean, it's natural. I can't imagine only communicating with her once a week. Now, I want you to think about something. Devoted to the apostles' teaching means devoted to the very word of God. And this is God's personal word. I love how Calvin put it when he said, it is a revelation of God himself. It is God sharing his very heart with you. So God says something. I want you to hear a few things about what God says about his people. He calls us, first of all, the body of, his Christ, body of Christ. And so as in Ephesians chapter 5, not to make that sound just kind of abstract, and what, he says we're actually flesh of his flesh and bone of his bones. We're united to him. In 1 Peter, he says we are participants in the divine nature. We share in the life of God. In Titus chapter 2, where he talks about the grace of God appearing all, to all men, the grace of God that teaches us to live self-controlled lives, to say no to ungodliness. It says God is purifying, plural, a people, a covenant family for himself. A covenant family that he says is his treasured possession. In Deuteronomy, he calls us the apple of his eye. And in Revelation, we are actually the bride of Jesus Christ. We're Jesus' wife. He's our bridegroom. It does not get more intimate and relational than that. And so, how devoted are you to 
the word of God, not as a formal, philosophical, just purely theological, okay, I know the truths of this, but to know the heart of God, to relate to God, to interpret your entire life under the narrative of the gospel. See, to be devoted to the apostles' teaching means we center our entire life on the apostles' message, and the apostles' message is the good news of Jesus Christ. So to do life together means we are a learning community together. Second, it means we are a loving community. See, the second way we cultivate community is by being devoted to one another. Verse 42 says they devoted themselves to the fellowship, which is the very familiar word koinonia. The word koinonia comes from the word koinos, which means common. And this, bear, this word bears witness to the common life of the community in two sense, senses. The first is what we share together, which do you recognize what we share together is God himself? We, if we together participate in the divine nature, we share in the life of God himself. 1 John chapter 1, verse 3 says, we have fellowship with the Father and the Son. 2 Corinthians chapter 13 says we have fellowship with the Holy Spirit. Koinonia is a Trinitarian experience. We are called, as Michael Reeves wrote in his book, Delighting in the Trinity, we are called to delight and enjoy the life of the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We have a common share in God. That's why I love with worship. Leviticus chapter 26 says that God actually joins us and walks amongst us. We've got to quit thinking in purely spatial terms, like heaven's up there. If I look deep enough and high enough above the clouds, maybe I'll see it. Where is it? Heaven and earth meet when the people of God come and worship. Jesus Christ is with us right now. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Heaven and earth are touching. Hebrews chapter 12 talks about you've come to Mount Zion, the heavenly Jerusalem, and we are getting a taste of heaven right now because we are in the presence of God together, exalting his name together, sharing that common life. There is no more important time in the life of the Christian than the corporate worship of the triune God where we are celebrating his presence but before we think because here's the second sense that when we talk about things like cultivation and celebration that's about a, kind of like thinking in a very binary logical one two three way those things also have an outward sense it'd be a false way of looking at the passage to say only that the cultivation and celebration there for us in communication is about Others, because all three aspects of the character of doing life together, of biblical community, have an outward face to them. Why? Because God inherently, by his nature, is outward facing. We are always moving toward God and toward others, and you see that when you see this loving community. See, verses 44 and 45, let me have you take a deep breath for a second when we look at those two verses. They are not about an economic theory. Okay, this is not anti-capitalism, pro this, whatever. No, this is about inherent generosity that comes upon the people of God because generosity is an attribute of God. And guess what we do if we're devoted to koinonia? The life of God has come upon us, which makes us, by identity, by nature, our new nature, 
generous people. Which means in these verses, he's saying, he's causing us to view our material possessions and view our stuff differently. He's saying when new life comes upon you and it comes upon the community, your things will not merely be for yourself, your things will be for the community. It just creates this generous nature because the life of God is upon you. I mean, think about how the gospel writers describe the life of God. In Matthew we read, the foxes have holes, the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Now think about that. Who does the hole belong to and the nest belong to? Don't say the fox and the bird. Because the last I heard, every square inch of the cosmos, everything visible and invisible, belongs to the Lord and King, Jesus Christ. He owns it. If we're breathing right now, we're breathing on loan, not breathing out of ownership. We are contingent and dependent upon everything. So the foxes, Jesus' fox has a hole because Jesus loaned it to him. Jesus' bird has a nest because Jesus loaned it to him. And yet the Son of Man, talk about over-the-top radical generosity, came into this earth and has nowhere to lay down his head. That is the life. That's the character of God. That is Now, how do we become a community like that? It goes back to the message. It goes back to the apostles' teaching. The radical generosity of God. See, we have to say, what, what is the gospel, in a sense, is God came down and gave. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. The Father and Son gave the Holy Spirit. The gospel... When we talk, I talked about Reformed theology, what's the heart of Reformed theology? We can't save ourselves, God saves us, in essence, okay? God saves us, why? Because God is giving. The essence of life, the essence of who God is, is that he gives. I love how the Croatian writer Miroslav Volf put it. He, he said, inscribed on the very heart of God's grace is the rule that we can be its recipients only if we do not resist being made into its agents. What happens to us must be done by us. Having been embraced by God, we must make space for others and ourselves and invite them in, even our enemies. How do we cultivate a learning, loving community? We need to see that what Luke is describing here is that this community is not mere recipients, but agents of God's grace and love. In other words, we are embraced by God, and what do we do in turn? We embrace. We're embraced by God, and then we embody that message in how we live. Two, celebration. The community that is filled with the presence and power of the Holy Spirit was a worshiping church. They were devoted to worship. Notice the definite article, they were devoted to the breaking of bread and prayer. The there is, because later they'll said with glad and sincere hearts, they enjoyed meals in each other's homes. They were doing, that's the loving community doing life together. Here they're talking about formal worship. The definite article, the, is used in the breaking of bread and prayer, giving reference to the Lord's Supper and probably prayer services in meetings as well as private prayer. And just real briefly, there are two aspects of the community's worship which exemplify its life. 
I want you to notice it was first both formal and informal. They met together both in the temple courts and in their homes. That means they didn't pit structure and unstructure. So there were no worship wars. They didn't sit there and say, it's only got to be traditional or it only has to be contemporary. No, what was worship? God-centered, absorbed with the life of God. These qualities were not mutually exclusive, which means in the second, their worship was both joyful and reverent. They didn't pit joy and reverence against each other. Verse 46 says they had glad and sincere hearts. Verse 43 says everyone was filled with a sense of awe and wonder and reverence. They didn't sit there and say if the sanctuary was humming with noise and whatnot, oh, this has to be the no joy zone. This is a reverent place. I'm getting a little nervous about too much joy here. And at the same time, it wasn't a frivolous joy that wasn't consumed with the fact that we are not coming as we are into anybody's presence. We are actually entering the very presence of God. Joy and reverence are never pitted against each other. So you can think about what happens when we worship. See, think about what happened. When we worship, God calls us. Worship depends upon God. He took the initiative. We didn't come of our own accord. God called us to worship. It's a demonstration of the faithfulness of God. We then are moved to confess our sins where we receive forgiveness afresh of sins, which leads us to sing out in praise where God is consecrating us to himself. In our songs of praise and our hearing of either a confession of faith or the scripture, he's setting us, he's saying, my people are people of the word. They are formed, they are shaped, they are governed by the light of the word of God, where we now commune with God. Around his word, at the table, when we come together, we're communing. And as we leave, what do we do? We are commissioned to go out into a mission field. Where we do what? And this is the last part where we communicate in word and deed this beautiful message of the good news of Jesus. The final aspect of the character of the community doing life together is communication. And there's a reason I began this reading. I know many of our Bibles say that paragraph starts at verse 42 and they have that little that subtitle, the fellowship of the believers. Actually, in the original, verse 41 is kind of the beginning. And there's a reason for that. Verse 41 begins with the fact they talk about as the word, and that was Peter's sermon, referring to Peter's sermon on Pentecost, kind of a summary statement of that, was on that day 3,000 souls were added to the community. And verse 47, see, concluding, this is kind of Rick's favorite word, the inclusio, as we conclude this, bracketing this, Verse 47 tells us that on a daily basis, day by day, the Lord was adding to their number those being saved. God was growing their community, telling us that healthy organisms grow. A healthy organism will grow. Now, what does this tell us about the community? An old and dated book is, is one by the name of Pentecost and Missions, written by a man by the name of Harry Bohr, and he writes, the Acts is governed by one dominant, overriding, and all-controlling motif. This motif is the expansion of the faith through missionary witness and the power of the Spirit. Restlessly, the Spirit drives the church to witness, and continually churches rise out of the witness. 
The church is a missionary church. I love how he puts that. Notice that this is our identity. Why? Because we are birthed out of a Trinitarian God. A Trinitarian God whose life is always moving. The Father loving the Son, sending the Spirit. Which is why Jesus, after his resurrection, when he appeared to the disciples, said to the disciples again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. Now, fascinatingly, that means we are not to be missional, like something we do. That means by our nature, by our identity, because we are in a Trinitarian God and we participate in a missionary God, we are missional by nature. Being missional means church, be the church. doesn't mean do something fancy or something out of the ordinary. It means be the church. Proclaim, embody, and live this message in word and in action. Cultivate, celebrate, and communicate the glory of this message. Now, remembering a couple of things. And here's another take a deep breath moment. First, about local church evangelism. Notice the text says the Lord added to their number. The Lord did it. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. As he revealed his word to Zechariah. It is not up to you who will save. God does the saving. We, though, receive life, and life is never stagnant, static, or dormant. Life is always active, and so as you receive life, it will move and overflow where you can't help but say, you may hate this, but Jesus is who I love more than anything in this world. I don't have the answer to every one of your questions, but all I know is to tell you, I don't love anything or anybody quite like I love Jesus. And you'll be saying that in your families and in your neighborhoods and wherever you hang out at at your workplace, at the civic society, that's how the church grew, because healthy organisms grew. The early church was not worried about, do we have the technique right? Are we getting the four spiritual laws? Maybe there were six of them. Did we miss law number 19? I'm not really sure. They were filled with the life of Jesus. The life of Jesus overflowed them. And I want to notice you to notice something else. It says, he added daily, or day by day, to them those who were being saved. Which means he didn't add people without saving them. And also, he didn't save them without adding them to the church. He did both. Now let me close with two things. What I call the problem of community and the promise of community. Community is difficult to achieve. There is an awful lot that wars against community. Things, and I think at heart, things war against community because it is something Jesus loves. He prayed for it. Just before his death in the Gospel of John, John chapter 7, what did he pray? He prayed that his community, his family, would be one. Notice what he grounded it and based it in. He based it in Trinitarian experience. He says, Father, as you were in me and I are in you, I desire them to be with us so that the love you have for me, that might be in them. They may love me as you love me. I mean, it is grounded in this participation in the life of God. If that is so much on the heart of God, 
Do you think Satan's indifferent towards that? Do you think Satan's kind of walking around, basically? Or do you think maybe Satan is not only using individualist things, but systemic things like society and economy and so much busyness and everything else that we have and our individualistic type of society that we have? That Satan hates the things God loves. But he's not our only enemy, is he? We have the enemy of our flesh, do we not? And the actual difficulty with community is a problem that is so much older than just modern problems of society and economy. The real problem we have with, co- with community goes back and originates with two people in a garden very long time ago. It originates with Adam and Eve as they did what? They pulled away from the embrace of God and went to the embrace of another. Notice they were still worshiping, loving creatures. Their nature was still, they were built for community. They just rejected the communion with God and listened to the word of the serpent. They rejected community. They rejected the message of God and instead pulled away and listened to the voice and the word of another. In other words, they lost community when they pulled away from the message. When they pulled away from the message, community disintegrates. See, what happens to Adam and Eve when they turn away from God? They hide. They hid from communion with God. They blame each other. They become alienated. Their lives become characterized by alienation, loneliness, and fear. See, community is lost when we pull away from the message. And this is where we see the hope and promise of community, that it's still possible. Because what do we see in this passage? We see the message the message of God coming near, the message of God overcoming. We get a glimpse of God coming near and redeeming. See, why does community happen? Peter's sermon is all about God coming near and redeeming through the work of his son, Jesus. In verse 37, it says that when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart. They heard the message and were cut to the heart. God drew near in the person of Jesus, and they were changed. They were transformed. Community happened. It erupted. One of the things we can't do is we can't program community because community is totally dependent on the message of the gospel. And community erupts when God draws near. We need to continue to return to the apostles' teaching, to the word, to the message of what it says. Let's pray. And Father, we do pray that you have chosen to visit us this morning and to come near. That is our hope. That is our desire. We pray, Father, that, and it's progressive and it's gradual, that you would change us, that we would experience less and less isolation, loneliness, abandonment, and more and more communion and connection, life and community. Jesus, we need you, and we thank you that you have come to us, that, Father, you sent the Son. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.